Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Right. Well, this is just to take you straight to the heart of the Congo and an introduction to ways of thought, which, when you first encounter them, seem to be very foreign and become familiar very quickly indeed. And all you need to know about this is that Marcelin is the leading scientist and he's the head of conservation of the fauna of the People's Republic of the Congo and the one man who claims to have seen the Congo dinosaur. Uh, and on this particular evening, he's um, in this village way up in the north. He slept with the schoolmaster's wife. The schoolmaster's either left the village or, or been killed. Nobody's quite sure. Um, and he's lost his wedding ring. And Larry is this, this wonderful heroic man. He, he's, he was the American photographer with me. He's also he's a professor of psychology at, at uh, State University of New York. And Somale is the protective animal, the imagined animal of the village, and the head of what, well, it's, it's really a leopard sect, but Somali um, is, is actually in shape, more like a man, but has leopard claws, and marks you down the back, rips you to bits. Uh, and Doku, very old, old man with a flappy goiter, and he, he was uh, told he was the most powerful sorcerer between the northern Congo and Senegal, and I could well believe it when I met him. And I've asked for a fetish uh, for my own protection, because I, I told Marston I had many, many enemies in Oxford, and I need something to protect me from their evil thoughts. Then I got terribly worried in case I did have any enemies in Oxford, because <laughs> so, I like to be loved by everybody, but particularly Tony Lacey. Now... Um, at midnight, Marcelin whistled outside the tent. See, we have a tent in the middle of the village. Thanks, Larry said to me, but I'll stay here if you don't mind. Redmond, no torches, Marcelin whispered through the tent flap. I don't want anyone to see us. I pulled on my boots and followed him across the street. Marcelin tapped twice on the hut door. It slid a body whip to the left. We stepped inside and Doku shut it behind us. Can you hear at the back? Looking ten years younger than in the morning. He'd had a big sleep, I decided. Doku was barefoot, but still wearing his old black jacket, black shirt and black trousers. Somali, he said, waving us to two low wooden chairs to the left of the fire, in its grate of stones, and himself perching on a three-legged stool, the white mugs and a gourd ready on a little slatted table at his side. Mr. Redmond! he said, pouring out the cloudy white wine. Tonight I will answer your question about Somali. His voice was unofficial, almost intimate. Dr. Marcelin and Mr. Redmond, we are here to talk about important matters, deep things. There are powers I can give you. These powers will change your lives. Doku replaced the gourd in its wooden stand. He goes slowly about the smoky little room as if reacquainting himself with something necessary and familiar in the red light of the fire, the orange-yellow glow of the palm oil lamp, or somewhere along the slatted shelves that ran round the walls, ranged with a confusion of smoke-blackened baskets, lidded gourds, pots and pans. He studied two six-foot spears with broad double-barbed iron points which rested against the back wall. 
He stared for hours, it seemed, at three small bundles of fur which hung above the lintel of the door. Somali is like the gorilla, he said, re-inhabiting himself, handing us the mugs of palm wine. He is like the gorilla, he is like the chimpanzee, he is like a man, and he is different from all three. He is hairless, he is beardless, his arms are longer than his legs. The three cuts he makes from left to right across a boy's back, the three cuts he makes from right to left, these cuts are longer than the wounds he leaves along the tops of that boy's arms. Marcelin stared at the floor. For the fetish, I said, how much? Doku looked straight at me. Ten thousand francs, Marcelin nodded. I pulled out another twenty notes. Doku picked up the other two, pushed the wad into the breast pocket of his jacket, rose to his feet, and disappeared through the dark entrance to the inner rooms. Marcelin muttered, Redmond, it's your fault. You forced me to come here. All my life I've tried to avoid to be free. Doku stood in front of us, holding something wrapped in black cloth. He sat down laid the bundle carefully on the table beside him, folded back the near edge, and drew out a small elongated bag, the size of a field vole, a string dangling from its neck. Mr. Redmond, this is a fetish for your protection, he said, and gave it to me. It fitted into my palm. It felt warm. Perhaps there was another fire in the inner room. A ruff of blue cloth protruded from its bound neck, and its thick brown fur was rubbed smooth in places, revealing white skin. There are no special conditions, no food conditions attached to the use of that fetish, he said, refilling Marceline's mug. You may eat whatever you wish, but it is forbidden to cross water too often. That fetish, which you must never open, the fetish which you now hold in your hand, Mr. Redmond, it contains the finger of a child. The spirit of this child will protect you. The spirit will guard you from thoughts that are old and sad. The spirit will free you from disease. The fetish itself is secret. Your very closest male friends, the men who hunt with you, they may glance at it. Your wife may touch it, but if she washes her private parts with it, it will lose its power at once. <laughs> yes. I managed to say. Marceline, drink, said Doku. Marceline drank. Doku drew a seemingly identical bag of fur from the black cloth. Marceline, this is not an ordinary fetish, he said, leaning forward on his stool, intent, his voice suddenly uneven, parched with emotion. Only I, Doku, have protection like this. It is mine, and I wish to give it to you. No, said Marceline, drunk pressing himself back in his chair. No, I don't want it. This fetish, said Doku, his hand trembling, it will protect you against your enemy's misfortune, everything. This fetish, it holds the trapped breath of Somali. I've told you before, said Marcelin, his arms tight across his chest, his neck rigid. I've told you a hundred times, I don't want it. Doku closed his right hand over the fur. He thrust his fist into the right-hand pocket of his jacket. He stumbled to his feet and stooped forward over Marcelin like a heron mantling a fish. Take it, Felipe Telly. You need my protection. Take it. Doku's fist, palm up, was level with Marcelin's chest. Doku opened his fingers. In the flat of his hand, something bright and yellow lay looped to the string at the neck of the fetish. Marcelin, barely breathing, his mouth half open, 
His eyes so wide they showed the whites stared at Doku's palm. His right hand, stiff as the hand on a sorcerer's doll, detached itself from the edge of his seat, reached up, and took the fetish and the wedding ring. Good, said Doku, sitting down, drinking for the first time. His goiter roused itself, bobbed up with each swallow. I thought so. Here in Macau, we help each other. I helped her, she helped me. Her husband, the schoolmaster, he's a stranger. He's not from here. He's a teke from the plateau. She wanted a son. She wanted a son for Somali. Marcelan is coming, I said. I sent a spirit to meet you. I knew you were coming. I knew you were coming long before you came here in the body, in bodily form. But both of you, you must go now. You have my protection. I can do no more. I'm asleep. Marcelan, I said as we walked very slowly back across the street like old men. I don't understand. How can you give the schoolmaster's wife a son for Somali? You're not initiated. You don't have the scars. When I left Macau, I was too young, but that doesn't matter, because I have a special position, a special lineage. A special position? Marceline turned to me. You really don't know, do you? Know what? Doku, he's my grandfather. I crawled into the tent, took off my boots and lay down. Larry stirred. He said, that old fraud, he didn't give you a damn thing, did he? Guessing in the dark where Larry's face was, I took the fetish out of my pocket, leaned over, and with a soft bag of monkey fur, gently brushed his cheek. Larry sat up and screamed. <laughs> well, it so happens that here's the fetish. Um, and it was x-ray, it does have a finger in it, but I like to think it's the finger of a monkey. I wasn't going to get it done anatomically. Uh, and that's, I mean, the power resides in the fact that it has to be secret, and uh, only sorcerers wear them around their necks where other people can see. But this, this really is genuinely rather horrible. It, it looks very, very much more impressive, I promise you, at midnight in a dark hut with the smoke rising from a little fire in a corner than it does... Um, in full sunlight and hair and wire, but all the same, it's not very nice. And this is the kind of thing that that fetish is meant to protect you against. Now, you can see it's not quite a work of art. It's meant to act in the world. Uh, and by and large, it really does. And the sorcerer, you go to see the sorcerer, and it really is expensive. It costs you probably the equivalent of a year's wages, as it were. And you really do have to hate whoever you want to put the spell on. And then the sorcerer will then scrape this neck. It's a hanging doll. It would be kept secret. Only the client would see it. And the neck is scraped. You can see it's been very well used. And uh, bits of this wood mixed with herbs are sprinkled into the palm wine of the victim. Um, and that, of course, would have no effect. But then the sorcerer's wife goes to see the victim normally, and she says, your palm wine has been tampered with. And that's the most terrifying thing you can hear in the northern Congo, the only bit that I really know about. Um, and word will get round the village at once. I mean, the sorcerer spreads it. And curses are catching. They're infectious. So your friends from childhood won't talk to you, look at you even. I see, I saw, well, I saw, I saw two men, uh, actually, sitting outside there, 
putts uh, wasting away, and they didn't seem to me to have HIV or anything, nothing wrong with them. Uh, but they've been cursed, and you, you, simply can't, you simply can't take that sort of pressure. And you'd say, well, why not leave? Why not uh, just get out, take your family with you? Well, you can't, because you're enclosed in a group probably of about five villages who speak a completely different language from the next group of five villages further down river because of all the migrations of the Bantu that have taken place over 100,000 years, perhaps. And the language is so different along, well, almost along every river that the same word, they may not have the same word for the moon, different as Eskimos from German, some of them. So you're trapped there. Um, and it's as if, as if you were in the office and... Uh, the boss, Tony, calls you in and says, um, look, I'm awfully sorry, but really, you, you, you stink. And nobody in this office likes you, and they never had. Um, they may have pretended they liked you at some stage, but actually, we all really hate you. And here, here's, here's a year's money just to get you out of here. Everybody's contributed to this fund. Uh, and then, oh, yes, and I almost forgot. I just had a phone call from your wife. And she says, please, just this weekend, maybe, you know, could you please go to a hotel? And she sent me some money to pay for you to go to a hotel because she'd really like to have one happy weekend in her life. And that your children, they play so well together, but really when they hear your key in the door, they sink into misery for the rest of the weekend. So please, you know, just hop along now. And we call that extreme reactive depression. Uh, in the northern Congo, it's just called the effects of sorcery, but you die within about four months. You just eventually stop eating, go into mortal depression. And these, each one of these knots here, I think there are ten, ten knots on this, or twelve perhaps, but they, each one of these is, is a success. So it's done very well over a long time. Uh, and the only reason I've got it is that somebody, either they'd paid more to a sorcerer or they had a great deal of self-confidence and they, they weren't phased, perhaps. Anyway, it failed. And you can't just throw something like this into a bush because the spirit that's remaining, even though it's failed, may um, come back and give you a fever at least. Uh, so a fat-passing white man is a very good thing, and you can sell it. And this was, um, unlike the fetish, which cost me 40, 40 chickens, this was going for um, a chicken and a half, so 1,500 CFA. So I'm very pleased to get rid of it. Now, all that's, all that's just a little bit grim, so we're, uh, it's time to um, upset the men in the room, I think. The girls needn't bother. But there's nothing whatever to do with the Congo. The Congo River's nothing like this in them. But the Amazon system used to be, the Amazon used to be connected to the, the Niger when the plates moved apart. And the Andes came up and the Amazon reversed and flowed the other way. So it's a terribly ancient system and has had time for the very nasty things to evolve in the rivers there. Uh, and I'd just like to warn you, if you're going on your holes this summer, to any of the Amazons, not to get drunk with your friends. There's some wonderful beer there called Polar Beer. And uh, you might think it was fun to go for a swim naked. Uh, and then you've had too much to drink, so you take a pee. Um, and this little catfish, it makes a mistake. It lives in the cloaca and gills of big catfish. He doesn't want to do what it's about to do. But it locks on the stream of urine, swims straight up, and... And it goes into the urethra, about halfway up, swims really fast, and it puts six retral spines, technically they're called, and now backwards-facing spines out on either side, and does a half turn, <laughs> and stays there. 
and the pain apparently is spectacular and the damage to the tissues is so bad that nothing you can do about it uh, but you have to move fast because people die from the, the bladder bursting uh, and you have to get to a hospital and in this case I mean Rio Negro several thousand miles Manaus is about the nearest hospital not much chance of getting there but apparently there are eight cases you have to go to the surgeon and say uh, please I mean Portuguese please will you cut off my penis <laughs> and give me a plastic one that works better but this <laughs> this is the actual fish you can see it later but in fact this is a pregnant female so it's rather big for most of us but not for Tony Lacey but that <laughs> and um, so that really did frighten me but they're sort of superficial fears in South America unlike the Congo but um, I think you'll have to admit this is a work of genius. This, um, in consultation with a man called Donald Hopkins at the Radcliffe Hospital uh, in Oxford, he, he's a man I much admire. He's the inventor of something called the hemorrhoid gun. Now, I hate to think quite how you use the hemorrhoid gun, but I assume that if you're a doctor at the Radcliffe, you go to the local Greenberries range and you very sensibly ask your patient to bend over 100 yards out and you fire it. You know. It's quite simple. So it was no problem for him and we put a tea strainer in this cricket box. And then when I put it on, the old Chimo's Indian said, uh, you don't wear those things in England all the time, do you? And they explained to me that this little fish went uh, everywhere else as well. So actually nobody goes for a swim in the river. You stand it up to your knees at most and wash. Um, well, it's probably time to have a look at some of these pictures. So after a, a short um, break from the sorcery, I think we should go back to Africa. Uh, now this, this one you've been looking at, that, that looks, see, only trouble with color is it A, cleans everything up, and B, you can't smell it. But this looks quite pretty, but it's, it's about, about 3,000 people settling down on open barges and they're, they're off for sometimes three weeks journey upriver so 3,000 people living in the open and between these big iron rusty old iron barges there are, there are holes in the deck and in the night um, they say the normal death is about two babies per voyage roll over and disappear well that you know nothing much you can do about that but really Grimmer is that upriver here, um, the fishermen come to have to sell, sell their, their, uh, their fish for that um, two weeks or three weeks or whenever. That's their only way to go to market. So there you are in a dugout canoe standing up with these bales of fish, all the wealth that you've got to dispose of. And this vast, vast thing uh, is beating upriver or down. The kinetic energy is enormous. And most people make it. But the death rate is, is really enormous. I mean, they, they, they pretend that nothing happens. But just when I was there on this two-week voyage upriver in this thing, um, we, we saw three or two fairly old men and one young boy disappear, drowned off the back, way back in the river. You can't swing this thing around. It's vast. Um, and I was the only person there apart from, from the captain who had binoculars. So the story goes that they're all picked up by fishermen. But um, I can tell you that they're not. So... Um, normal life, but not much fun, really. Um, 
and we're we're way up river now in the jungle. This is just a very this is a very quick tour. Let's get this. Now that's this is Larry Schaffer, heroic guy. Uh, I didn't know, but he he came with me to America because he he didn't want to spend the summer stripping paint in his house in Cornelia Street in Plattsburgh. That was the line. But actually, he came because. It's a friend at Oxford, but then I hadn't heard from him for quite a long time. Um, well, a long time. And I didn't know that he'd been confined to a wheelchair and gone blind uh, with multiple sclerosis. And he'd put out a computer search through his university and found that all the best work on it was done in Sweden and that you have to have a, a diet of uh, fish and chicken and no fats that are solid at room temperature. Uh, but the main thing is to force yourself out of your wheelchair. And he walked two feet the first day one and a half the next, and so it went on. But eventually, he, such willpower this guy's got, he, he, he cycled right across America in 33 days. Um, and at the peak of fitness, my letter to him arrived, and then he came to join me. And I only heard about the multiple sclerosis when we went to a fetishers, as one showed, in Brazzaville on day two. And uh, she said, which to me, seemed a perfectly sensible and obvious thing to say to any two people gathered together in Brazzaville. You can be sure one of them will be ill. Uh, and she said, looking at the cowrie shells, she said, one of you is very ill right now. And, uh, and Larry said, sweat pouring off him, yes, it's, it's me, it's me. And then I really did get worried. Uh, now, these are people who are very easy to fall in love with. Not not for the obvious reasons of that too, but wonderful, humorous, gentle, hunter-gathering groups. There were about 100,000 of them spread over this area. These, these are, well, they're, they're Aka, but they're Babinga here. They're not the same quite as the people in Cameroon. They don't all understand each other. Um, and there's a big debate as to whether there's a pygmy language or not. Uh, seems an odd thing for linguists not to have worked out, but it's true. Um, and there's no record of them ever killing anybody except in direct, direct revenge for a, a, a pygmy that's been murdered. Uh, and staying with them was, well, as near to paradise as you get in the middle of the forest. And, and they're wearing these... Um, necklaces. You have to take presents wherever you go, of course, uh, and give out Polaroid pictures. But these, these, are, these are very British necklaces from a trade fair, red, red, white, and blue. So in the middle of the Congo, there's a lot of these very poncy necklaces being worn there. And this one's here for Tony Lacey from Penguin. I wish I'd taken that picture, but um, it's true that it does make a difference having an ex-professional photographer with you. Larry took these pictures. And you first think, when you come across a hunter-gatherer people, you think how extraordinarily beautiful they all are, how fit, how marvelous. And everybody greets you with these wide eyes and tremendous alertness, and their movements are all uh, ultra-fit. I mean, of course, because these people are Olympic athletes, because that's what they do all day. They're eight hours hunting if they're in a hunting mood. Um, and then you realize, yes, but they're all young. And then, and then you realize that um, if you're not fit and young, you're dead. The death rate is, 
it's tremendous. You're old at 30 or 40. And this, so this man is really exceptional. He's, uh, he's a healer, Makolo. He, um, he's the nearest thing you get to an authority figure in a group of pygmies. It's a very, very democratic society. And um, I'm all for them because they're all, they're all good atheists, pygmies. But they just think that the forest provides everything and God is the forest and the forest is God. And, but they make up all kinds of myths which slot into the animism of the surrounding Bantu to keep them out of the best hunting areas and to keep them out of their patch of forests if they can. So they'll say, well, there was one um, story I particularly liked. Is that there was a huge 200-foot uh, tree at the start of this path from a village, which was actually five days' walk away, but, um, and in the forest. But the pygmies would all swear to everybody that if you pass that tree, which was the way towards this uh, very rich hunting ground, low-lying ground with water, chevrotain, and antelope in it. If you pass that particular tree, uh, your balls would be absolutely certain to drop off. <laughs> so they had the forest to themselves. Um, and, and I actually saw some good, good hard pygmy medicine taking place because a guy with me who was weak from malaria was complaining about his bad back, little, little Manu. Um, well, he was, a, he was a wonderful, gentle guy. But... He'd, Macaulay decided he'd better do something about this back pain. So little Manu is uh, squatting down with his back bed, and Macaulay's as assistant made 18 slits with, with a rusty knife back here and then rubbed in charcoal, and then across the shoulders. So Manu was slit all over the place. And to stop him feeling the pain of the knife slits, they whopped him across the back with a stick. And, <laughs> and strange thing, but Manu never, ever complained about his back ever again. <laughs> it worked. And Makolo, I'm afraid, well, I can tell you here, but it's sort of not a family program. But uh, Makolo, he also offered to, to help Enze, who was with me. Um, and I, did, I was loath to part with the last Damoxil, for which you take 12 and it uh, will cure gonorrhea. But it was, it's not really meant for that. And we run out of penicillin injections. And uh, so Macola said he'd, he'd help. And uh, Enze, who had uh, lovers in every village, I'm glad to say he ran off and hid because he didn't want to have, as he explained, he didn't want to have his cock slit. <laughs> I was all for it. Now, this is before the hunt. Um, and hunting, the way they do it is terribly efficient. So it, in fact, gives them lots of time for the arts, you know, hey and why the festivals, literature, uh, above all for singing is really what it is, the most amazing, complicated rhythms of wonderful songs, which goes on all night, three or four in the morning. And then it doesn't matter because they're hunter-gatherers so they can sleep for a couple of days and then go out with their nets again. Um, and I couldn't help thinking that the first description of these people actually is, is one of the Pharaoh Pepe II's general called Herkouf, who, who led a caravan and then an expedition into the forest and has the most wonderful description of listening, listening to the little people under the great trees singing the song of the gods in the land of legend. Well, that is exactly what it looks like, these vast trees and these little people dancing. Anyway, we, were, we went on this, uh, this hunt, and just, just in an afternoon, they, uh, they netted um, eight antelope, big antelope dikers, 
And here again, I think this is the best picture that came out of the six months that Schaffer took, I'm afraid. But it's this young boy carrying this net, which I couldn't even pick up. He must be all, what, all of eight years old. He's still got the convex forehead of childhood. And this net, you can see the pegs go into the ground. And all the families get together. It's a very, very social, it's a bonding exercise. They, they put all their the nets, can, can stretch for three quarters of a kilometer if you've got enough family groups together. And then the, then the women and children start the beat in the distance and the guys stand by the nets and, and spear. You have to move fast because the nets are quite, quite low. Spear the antelope as they burst into them. And there are slightly heavier nets they use for bush pig, but bush pigs are altogether more serious business to hunt. And then after the successful hunt, here's the dance a dance of um, either of thanksgiving for the hunt or because the nets haven't been full from the last hunt. Uh, and this, this is a, the chief hunter um, who actually looked, well, I haven't got a picture of him, so not, but he looks a bit like Martin Amis. I thought he was really very full of energy. And he was, the, he was also the novelist to the group, so he was the one who told them all the stories and knew the dances. Uh, and this is the spirit of death come to visit, uh, come to visit you and your friends. But they know how to cope with it. And the, the spirit of death is decoyed and made drunk on palm wine. And then everybody leaves. Seems a very sensible way to deal with death. And as you can see, he's wearing, he's wearing the sacking over his head. And that's a, a gorilla skull. He's wearing a gorilla skull. It was the most incredibly impressive dance I've ever seen. <laughs> And then after that, this is the dance of the women, this wonderful, high-pitched song um, that goes on in a slow dance for hour after hour, and some of it seems quite organized and some anarchic. This, again, it, it's rare. This was the oldest woman in this quite large group, uh, and she, apparently, every time they dance, she says goodbye to her dead children. She's communicating with her dead child there with her hands on its head and then in my mind the pygmies they look at well they look after you don't know what's going on and they are in some kind of parental role in my mind I hadn't got these pictures I'd swear to you that Muko this guy the chief hunter an extraordinary tough guy who could carry 80 pounds all day and not uh, would still be fresh in the evening I imagine him and in my dreams indeed he's at least nine feet tall he's huge massive guy um, and that's him. And because we're in a village, well, we've got right across the watershed, something I've always wanted to do, but he, um, he'd actually belong to, or, or his patron, his owner, I mean, they're, they're, they're almost slaves, except that they can escape into the forest. In one village, uh, he thinks that Muko belongs to him. And then we arrived in this other village way across the watershed, different, different river system. And he, he uh, said, well, that's my pygmy. And I'd paid Muko all his, um, all his francs per day. Uh, and he had them in his hand. And to him, it was as if they were leaves of the forest. Though, Anyway, um, this big Bantu just took them all, took all their money. So the pygmies had done all this bearing for us for nothing at all.
one I just like because I look so thin and macho, and as you can see, I'm neither. <laughs> now we got right down to uh, the village of Boaz, very violent place. I think this is probably why Lake Telly is meant to be unreachable. It's not a bit unreachable. It's only it's only three days' walk through the forest from the nearest village, which is Boa, and the people of Boa own this lake. Um, but like every village in the Congo, uh, the People's Republic, it's a Marxist state. And it is very impressive. There's a schoolhouse way up every river, something I've never seen before. Um, and it was a big disappointment, in fact, in Boa, to walk into the school hut, just open windows, mud floor, and rough-hewn homemade desks, of course. But that... That wasn't the point. Uh, on the blackboard, there was, I'm not very good at algebra anyway, but the, the calculations were so advanced I couldn't begin to follow them. It was a terrible moment. Uh, but this is the chief of Boa. Now, he, he will be in constant battle with the schoolmaster and the little committee, it's called the, the People's Village Committees. So the government or the agent will select low-born men who everybody knows way back they've been slaves taken in battle. So, so the bottom strata, we're, when we're in talking about the most 120 people, but it's arranged exactly like a small country. So there's the royal household, the monarchists, and then the other end of the village, the communists. And they, uh, well, it's sort of two people dead a year in this, in this village, but, but the murders are done with this, these knives, creep up behind and shove them in the kidneys. I just found one of these on the path and, and um, took it. I'd like to tell you that's blood here, but it's rust, I'm afraid. So, that's one reason why Lake Telly is, is not a good place to go to. But um, when you get there, most incredibly beautiful place, a numinous, wonderful lake. If there was anywhere a dinosaur was still going to be found, it would certainly be there. But, isn't that arty? You could hang it on your own wall. <laughs> but I'm afraid we arrive 67 million years too late. But there are vast turtles there and, um, and wonderful groups of chimpanzees all around it and lots of gorillas. Gorillas actually follow you down the track. Uh, curiously. Oh, that's um, Vicky, the chief's favorite son. And I just like, I like this picture of him standing there with a flower looking as if he wouldn't harm anybody. A big guy, though. Um, and and uh, wonderful in every way, except that he beat his wife every night for, for correction, he told us. He sounded, she sounded like a dwarf bush baby in terrible pain. His awful screams all night long. That's partly another reason why life in an African village, I think, feels so familiar late at night. I mean, a Congo, a Congolese village. Um, it may be because we've all read our Freud, and Freud read a vast amount of West African ethnography. He was fascinated. And he took Darwin, or late Darwin, so Lamarckian by then, inheritance of acquired characteristics, and took the run of evolution, put it up that way. And then on top of his idea of the id, past evolutionary time, sprinkled life in an African village at night with all the screams and the bumps and the murders. I think maybe that's it. But, but much more attractive theory as to why you feel so at home in the middle of Africa. Uh, maybe something to do with the great eight-feet drums, which when the Bantu are playing them, standing on a platform, the earth, you could, it feels as if the earth's moving. It's the most wonderful thing. I mean, quite impossible not to want to go ashore for a howl and a dance or anything else. It makes, um, 
these eight-foot drums being played in the line of three with these men with enormous muscles and then smaller guys beating the stems of the drums and the dance going on round and round all around you. I mean, it, makes, it makes a disco look like uh, life in the vicarage where I grew up. Now, I fell in love with Gorilla. Uh, he, his mother, they, they, this village of Boa, the only village we came across where they hunt gorillas, um, and they don't hunt them for food. There's plenty of there's plenty of uh, diker antelope, and um, a lot of monkeys shot with poisoned arrows, and uh, no need to hunt gorillas. But but they have special twelve foot long spears, and you provoke the male gorilla to charge on your spear, and it's in some ways uh, an initiation rite. You then become a man, but. If you're preparing to kill somebody or go to war or you need to be strong or you think you're ill, you, you must eat gorilla meat. It's quite easy to follow the logic of all these things. As it, as it always is. So you eat a gorilla to be as strong as a gorilla. And I'm afraid normally it's the females who get killed because the male gorilla runs off, scoots off fast. I mean, they're always first to go. But, and so the poor female gorillas whose who body weight is, is not much bigger than us, um, they're, not, they're not very big. They're slowest if they have babies, so that's why these these the infants are brought back to the village and kicked around a bit, and they eat mud and scoop stuff, soil up, in them and then they then they die. So I adopted this one, and and we bonded, I'm afraid. And if you jiggled him up and down, and kissed him on top of his head, he smelled the fresh leaves right up there. And then yeah, and a gorilla smile goes like this. So we slept wrapped up in a tarpaulin together. And this is um, it's feeding time, but he thought that we had a little bit of milk left. But it's mostly rotten papayas and things feeding. But he thought, big joke, even at, even in that little bundle like that, it's incredibly strong. The muscles are, uh, are... I couldn't hold that blue mug when he decided otherwise. So when he got halfway down this every time, he'd duck his head and bung it over the... And eventually I just gave, abandoned everything and got him down to Brazzaville. And when I, um, from a little frontier airstrip in Fondo, which doesn't work anymore apparently, sent him down in a cardboard box to, and he was the first orphan into Aspinall's orphanage in, in Brazzaville. Um, so I, I've been grateful to Aspinall ever since. You can't see here, but he's wearing a nappy. It's very advanced. And he's in, in the orphanage the only one in there, uh, and that's a reunion when I'd had a big wash, and so had he. <laughs> uh, and I'm afraid in a year later he, he died. He died of a burst ulcer because he got so jealous of all the incoming orphans who were very disturbed because they'd all seen their mothers speared in front of them and cut up into steaks too. Well, now, before somebody dances in the raffia skirt, we could have some questions. Or, or I, I promised to read this statement from Ivan Klima, so perhaps I'll do that first while you think of a question. And this is um, for the index on censorship. Everybody here is reading one of these. When I met Eva, I had supper with Ivan Klima on Sunday. It was an awful moment because he looked very young to me and he was talking about a camp and I hadn't been listening very carefully and to begin with I thought it was a scout camp. What actually talking about was being a child in a concentration camp. 
uh, and he wrote this in 1981 on the importance of internal freedom. There is no place on this earth where a man might be totally free, nor can I imagine a force that would be capable of permanently depriving people of all freedom. Contemporary society cannot exist in complete freedom, nor can it exist in complete unfreedom. Excessive external freedom, which one happens to be born with, which is simply given to one without any effort on one's own part, no doubt has the same effect as any other excess. It tends to make us soft and leads to further excesses. A lack of external freedom, which one happens to be born with, and which one can do nothing to change, has the same effect as a shortage of anything else. It forces us to turn in upon ourselves. Just as the hungry man dreams about food and, and satisfaction appears to him to be the highest form of bliss, the man who is not free dreams of freedom, thinking that if only he could achieve it and obtain his proper rights, everything else would be at his fingertips. But it can happen that a man will only start thinking about what freedom means to him once he has lost it. And it can also happen that a man will unexpectedly gain external freedom. It is then that he discovers that this external freedom is no more than an opportunity which may well show him his own emptiness, his unpreparedness for the free life he had been dreaming of. It is generally accepted that an author cannot write in conditions of external unfreedom. Many times in this last decade, I have been asked by visitors from abroad how I was able to bear my fate, how I could exist as a writer since I was not allowed to publish. These people have probably never asked themselves, how did a writer exist who, while free to publish as and what he liked, actually had nothing to say, or for one reason or another desisted from saying it? And so, as I have said, it is his inner freedom that really counts where an artist is concerned. He can live and work surrounded by brutality. He can live and work even though deprived of his rights. After all, the great Russian literature of the 19th century was created in one of the most unfree empires the world has ever known. I would say that it is the man who knows how to choose, to detect his very own opportunity at every decisive turn in his life, who is truly internally free. He is not afraid of that voice, should it ever speak to him. Well, that's all very brave, isn't it? But we don't want the secret police around here. Thank you. Right, any questions? I have to repeat them because we don't have a, a roving microphone. They're on their way from London. Oh, what the pygmies made of me and what my life was like. Well, that's the same everywhere in these places. And in fact, you look, you look disgusting to these people because right across the tropical belt, they have no facial hair, really, um, and very little hair anywhere else. There's no point because it doesn't help you to increase your body area and increase it. No good sweating because it's 98% humidity. So A, you look revolting. B, you're white, the color of the dead in all these cultures. So you're a, the girls look at you and scream and dive into bushes, and then they feel awful about it, and they're terribly nice to you afterwards, very well-mannered. But Dave, it's too late. They've shown how utterly disgusted they are. And, of course, you stink. Um, I mean, the pygmies, to me, smell terrible. You can smell a pygmy camp, the Babinga camp, at least 100 yards off. Um, but, but they can walk right up to an elephant and... Uh, you know, they never, they never miss because they they can creep up on an elephant and uh, poachers from the Sudan give them guns and they hold it to the elephant's throat as they would do if they were using a spear. Um, so they don't smell to anybody except somebody 
coming in from the west covered in soap at least haven't got any soap then but um so that's one that's sort of the physical level and really they think of you mostly as something amusing get very bored especially especially the people who are, are farmers stuck there and your duty you have to entertain people uh, as well as uh, you must bring presents with you but then it takes time that's partly what uh, the structure of the book's about it wasn't until till well way on in South America for instance that the, the, the young bloke with me all the way Kuripaku Indian said what he'd really like to do in life was go where aircraft are made so he could get inside one and fly you know. um, and the Okit in, in Borneo the young Okit that we finally met they'd been to school but, but really what they wanted to do was was to go and, and be disco dancers um, and what, could, could we fix them up a job as disco dancers that was that's a big shock. Uh, but I think the real answer in general is that they treat you as if you're an incompetent child and look after you uh, and are terribly amused that you have no idea what to do in this environment. How absurd that uh, you can't walk along without making a terrible noise and that it's perfectly obvious when handed a crossbow that you've missed by several hundred yards. Um, they, it's very, they laugh at you. Um, if if they were transferred transferred to our society, would would they do they know that they'd be inept? No, the answer is no. The Yanomami uh, very sensibly think live very isolated. This group, I suppose, in the middle of South America, um, think that they're the first created people, and that we've all degenerated from a we can't speak the Yanomami language, and their their word for a foreigner who's not a Yanomami is exactly their word for one half of a turd. It seems. Fair enough. Um, so that's how they think of the external world. But Shagnon, this anthropologist, did take uh, a young Yanomami, the first time it had been taken out of the forest. And he was terrified by the eyes. There were these eyes at night, headlights of the cars. Um, but the, the poignant story I remember was, was Shagnon said to him without thinking, they'd the shop and the, the jeep was outside with one window wound down. Um, Go, go back and get my wallet or whatever it was, an Indiana Mami, Shagnon, so it would be his holder of leaves. Or, um, and he turned around too late, looked out the shop window and saw his Yanomami friend diving straight in through the half-open window to, into the car. <laughs> He'd worked out how to get into it. Um, so it's a profound question. When the pygmies come out of the jungle, um, Turnbull describes, they thought there were they have no sense of perspective, you see. Everything happens within 20, 30 yards. When they first saw Wildebest and, and Zebra on the plane, thought that there was these minute animals that absolutely tiny. Yeah. Yes. Yes, a Russian friend who's never seen cat's eyes or hedges. Yeah, same how I feel in New York. And
presumably, presumably that way of life um, will disappear, and when it does, what will be the loss to us? Well, I think an immeasurable loss. Um, most importantly, I think, if I would, it's a way we lose that way of thinking, all those myths and all those stories, uh, and that that way of life. It's terribly unfashionable to say so, but it 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 must represent uh, our origins. It's because even though cultures feel such a superficial affair when you get back after one of these trips, uh, but the sort of sneaky answer to your question is that I don't think, certainly in the Congo, that it will disappear. You're told everywhere Africa is returning to Africa every day. Every Western power, I mean, this may not last, has got out of the Congo, apart from the French, and it's still there with the oil. But, but the minute the Cold War was over, and the Russians left, the Americans went, we went, the Cubans pulled out, even the Cubans went. So certainly upriver, it's all falling to bits. The population is declining. The pygmies just want to be left alone. And when pygmy children do go to school, they're all top of the form instantly. But then parents go back into the forest and they, it's hopeless. Uh, and the other answer, to put it in perspective, is that after I was there, uh, the president of the Central African Republic, just to the north, said that from now on, pygmies are to be considered as human beings for census purposes, perhaps. I mean, not that they were. Still animals in the eyes of the Bantu. Do they put the elderly out to the hyenas? Yes, no, like taunt, like the yes, like Turnbull's book. No, no, certainly not. And as, and as I'm sure you know, there was some debate about whether that was just because the bad seasons or something. I mean, I, I've never come across a society like that. The elderly, they die, and there's nothing, nothing to be done. Most people die of septicemia very early on. But once you are old, uh, well, you're like Macola, in terrific respect, not expected to go hunting. Everybody will feed you and look after you. And, and the children, you're the teacher. The children sit around these old men until they're exhausted, demanding more stories. Um, and... But with the Anamami, there are special reasons why old women are, are valued, because they're the only people that you can send as a messenger to try and stop a war, because they're the only, the only people you've got who won't be gang-raped and then cut into bits on the way. Everyone, uh, you, if you haven't got an old woman available, you're in deep trouble. Well, the, the, the pygmies in the Congo really didn't know at all. But um, on the other hand, they'd been in contact with the North since 2500 BC, that first Herkuf Egyptian report. And we know about it because it's written on the side of a tomb. Um, so they might, I mean, they've had, pygmies had long contact, known they were there, but officially so-called discovered only by Dushayu in the 1870s. Uh, so practically yesterday. But it's very difficult to tell what they think or how much they know. I mean, if they've been to schools, even these Marxist schools, which are run by one brave, fully committed 
offspring of poor parents, otherwise he wouldn't be sent into the rainforest, into the jungle. But he's, he has to go there for two years. No books, no pens, no help, no visits, nothing. He's expected to run this school on his own for two years before he's allowed out. Um, but, but he, he will, uh, if the pygmies go to his school or anywhere near it, they'll, they'll hear stories about the West. And they're not completely isolated. But the Bantu children way up the rivers, equally deprived in many ways. They, they all asked me if it was, the common question was, does anybody die in America? Yeah. America is, is the land of dreams, North America. And I think that's because they're taught all day long that, that uh, the States is, is the home of Satan and uh, these evil people live there. Um, and it's the great public enemy. Nobody is more evil than these capitalists. And that seems to translate into absolutely all the young people in the Congo want to go to the States at once. One at the back. What, what was the most harrowing? Well, it, in Africa, it was, it was terrible to see. I haven't brought a picture, but to see children with, with yours, Pian, it's a, it's a disease which is incredibly easy to treat. If I'd known that uh, they had yours way up these rivers, any, any picnic group in contact with the Bantu will get it and terrible sores start. And it's, it's, you can't tell the difference between the spirochete that causes yours and the one that causes syphilis, even under microscope, but they're quite different diseases, nothing to do with sex. It's carried on the feet of flies and normally starts from the mouth here. And these awful lesions spread, these little, little tiny kids' faces and their glands swell up. And they, there's a high death rate. Uh, and I sent these pictures to the public health people in Amsterdam who run a big program on yours uh, and they said yeah but it, 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 it's stamped out Congo and that's because extensively cost 40p per injection and the World Health Organization's headquarters for Africa is actually in Brazzaville so 400 to 600 miles away from the people and they send these doctors, local doctors, up with the drugs, with extensiline, to inject the pygmies, to protect them. One injection protects you for life, it costs 40p. Uh, and because it works against syphilis, they, they sell the drugs in the last pharmacy in Infondo, write up a report, and go back so nobody actually had been treated. Uh, and that, that was a terrible thing to see. And also, you think, how could I, you know, I really should have known about this, because one backpack would have, would have treated practically everybody we met. Uh, and then it hurts to say it, but for an evangelical atheist, coming down another river way over, um, there was an American fundamentalist missionary with his wife with her purple head, and, and uh, he was actually doing it. Uh, sorry to say, he was really helping these people, there's no doubt about it. <laughs> he was saving life after life. Yeah, they had, to, they had to sort of say the creed first, but it didn't seem to matter to me. Yes, he was doing a wonderful job. One more and then we're better. Well, uh, there, yes, there's debate about that. Nobody, the, an the answer is nobody knows. Um, and they're not, they're not as genetically closely related as you think. Um, 
Yes, except that, yes, yes, hunter-gatherer, except it's desert and much, much more difficult. It, it really is an incredibly rich forest, the Congo, the most beautiful forest I've ever been in. Uh, you, see, you, see, you see more monkeys, groups of monkeys, colobus and, uh, um, and uh, lots of guenons, all kinds of different species, in a day's walk than you would in, in three, to three to four weeks walking in the northern Amazons. Uh, and it looked, well, it looks very different. There are no bromeliads uh, and fewer creepers and lianas, but you're conscious all the time that you might come around the corner and find a really big mammal. I mean, there are elephant prints all over the place. Probably shouldn't say so. They, they are on the decline. You see elephant boulevards where, since the hunting from the Sudan, these armed gangs, um, instead of it being pressed flat hundreds of miles where the elephants migrate, uh, I'm afraid the saplings are up here now, so no one's been along it for, what, three years or um, so terribly rich and full of life. And well, I think that's probably ought to be it. Yeah. yeah. I think Melvin's <laughs> going. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very quickly. Mm.